their stories being told. By people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. Entertainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or at Best Buy to astound your family, friends, or our boys and girls in blue. The headlines are ear-catching, that can be true factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week, there will be two little lines thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Brenna. And my name is Michael. The topic this week is... Natural disasters. Okay, mispronunciation disclaimer this week. Before we start, we apologize in advance for any mispronunciations that occur. We try to do our due diligence to find the correct pronunciations of names and places, but there will be a couple times this episode we fall short, and we are sorry for that. Um, We're going to add that to every episode. Uh, we we try not to do just like you know easy to pronounce places names and everything like that. So yeah, it will probably be in most episodes. Uh, Michael, are you ready for my topics? <sighs> as ready as I will ever be, I suppose. It has rained animal parts in the United States at least seven times. Well, I know about that. I know. <laughs> I, I think we've talked about this one before. The world's largest power generator was built because three point seven million people died. Huh. Well, okay, continue. I love this last one. A coronal hole shocked telegraph operators. Well, gosh darn it. <laughs> All of those sound true to me. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with the animal body parts. Okay. It has rained animal parts in the United States at least seven times. Also, I realized that some of these, like, I just get a lyric in my head and I start... I, I, anyways, I add them to the beginning of my things. Anyways, here's this week's. It's raining blobs. Hallelujah. It's raining blobs. <laughs> the morning of August 7th, 1994, started like any other in the semi-coastal town of Oakville, Washington. And when I say in the morning, I mean midnight. By 3 a.m., the town looked very different. Gelatinous blobs began falling from the sky as rain. And it rained down in sheets. Mm. Police officer David Lacey was on patrol at the time, and like any motors, turned on his windshield wipers. The, the goo began smearing so bad that he had to stop his patrol cart at the nearest gas station. Dottie Hearn, an Oakville resident, stepped outside and noticed what she thought was hail on the firewood pile she had. Upon further review, she found that it was an odd jelly texture. Ew. <laughs> what do these two Oakville inhabitants and others in town have in common? Oh, yeah, um, that was a, that was a question. Oh, they have. Come on, you've read the story. You read. They you're live least. in the same place. Well, that's true. <laughs> they all fell ill within hours of the blobs making landfall. Oh, that was my second guess. All the affected residents had respiratory issues: vertigo, dizziness, and nausea. Some residents were sick for up to three months. Dottie had to be hospitalized for a few days and was treated for Meniere's disease, a disease that damages the inner ear. Most patients who have Meniere's have lasting complications. However, Dottie recovered within a few months. Upon her release, her daughter asked Dr. David Little, one of the town's doctors, what, what she was actually afflicted by. 
Quote, I don't know. Some type of virus is what he remarked. Oh my god, they didn't even like... Didn't even know. I mean, like, you know, we we don't realize that medical stuff is a lot more guess and check than, you know, we'd like to think, but that sucks. Well, even in a small town like that, yeah. Oh yeah, especially in a small town like that. So the bulk of this story comes from Dottie's daughter, Sunny Barcliffe, who kept a journal and recorded the odd occurrences that followed the raining blobs. She recorded six periods of blob blob rain over the next three weeks. Oh my god, that's so much blob. She noted that a number of the barn cats that she had on, on her property died or vanished over the same period. She also remarked that the bigger farms in the area also lost livestock due to disease. So what were the blobs? Well, I have a question. Oh, okay. At this point, do they have like a um, a measure of how much percentage this place is now a blob? No, that was not recorded. <laughs> like, the, the you old... are now over 1% blob. <laughs> that's a lot of blob out there. That is a lot of blob. Okay, what were the blobs? Uh, well, samples of the goo were sent all... Wait, were... wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait. Are they jellyfish? I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> Samples of the goo were sent off all over the state. One attempted, recognizing what the blobs were, stated that they contained white blood cells. The Washington Gross. Those are the worst blood cells. The Washington State Department of Ecology noted that the cells had no nuclei, which would mean that they could not be white blood cells. Oh, those are also the worst ones. Amtest Laboratories concluded that the goo was eukaryotic, which, if you aren't familiar are cells with a nucleus found in almost all animals. I was incredibly familiar. Mark McDowell of the Washington Department of Health noted that the goo was made up of two parts, Pseudomonas fluorescens and Enterobacter cloacae. And I probably should practice pronouncing that <laughs> beforehand. Okay. Uh, so Pseudomonas... We do the disclaimer, we're fine. <laughs> Fluorescence is a bacterium that can cause disease in humans, but it usually only impacts people with compromised immune systems. In 2006, for reference, 80 patients in six states caught Pseudomonas fluorescens due to a contamination of saline bags for cancer patients. Additionally, it can also cause fin rot in fish. Ew, that's bad now enterobacter cloacae are used in the biodegradation of explosives and is registered as a biosafety level one hazard in the united states which sounds worse than it is i mean it's kind of bad but basically bsl1 is the lowest biosafety categorizations oh okay yeah so keep raining buddy it's fine mcdowell added that these two parts could lead to very serious illness but mysteriously, his samples vanished before he could send them off to another lab to be verified. And honestly, this next part is where the, this kind of goes off the rails. McDowell came in one morning and asked where his samples had gone. Quote, I came in, and the material was not where it was supposed to be. I asked management, what happened to it? The exact words were, do not ask. Oh, what? So there's no definitive proof on what the blobs were or where they came from. And at this point, all literature starts leading to conjecture. I didn't want to fall into that trap, so I encourage all of you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. <sighs> yeah. Uh, the end? We don't know what the blobs are? Well, the last last note is there are no remaining samples of any of the blobs. They just disappeared? They just disappeared. Like, like 
Will alien blob people? Do not ask. Well, I already did ask. Is that going to be a problem? Well, I don't have an answer to that. So is you, somebody going to come to our door? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> All right, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, um. So that one was true, and uh, I'm going to be completely honest. So I, re- I wrote these a few weeks ago. I don't actually recall which one's the lie. So uh, you're going to learn right along me. Along with me. <laughs> with me. The world's largest power generator was built because 3.7 million people died. A coronal hole shocked telegraph operators. What was the first one? The world's largest power generator was built because 3.7 million people died. Okay, give me that one. Okay. Uh, this is coming back to me. I think this is the lie. Well, I think you're... Titles suck. Pop quiz. <laughs> Can you name any hydroelectric Whoa. dams? Hydroelectric? Dams. Is Hoover? Hoover Dam's one of them. Ha! Is Which is fed by Lake Mead. Can Boulder? You, uh, you're going to need to be more specific. Boulder Dam. Colorado. I should have done more research when I asked this. <laughs> I don't believe that... Oh, you don't believe you don't that believe the Colorado in anything. River has a <laughs> hydroelectric dam anymore. Okay, on well, it. I got one, so it's fine. I'm good for this. Go for it. Okay, well, um, the grand. Wait, wait, wait. do they eat people? And they ate three point seven million people, and now they have to do something else for power. Uh, okay, no, that's not how they get power. <laughs> okay. So uh, the Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia River in Washington okay. is a huge power generator. Also, Niagara Falls. That makes New- sense. In New York, it's pretty big. I hear. Okay, well, because you're familiar with the Hoover Dam, and I guessed right that you were going to guess that one, let's use that one for reference. I hate that you guessed that I was going to guess that right. I hate that. Okay, so I'm going to pose a question, and then I'm going to give you some background, and at the end, I want an answer. Oh. How many kilowatt hours do you think the Hoover Dam produces in a year? Now, while you're thinking about that, here's some background. So... 1,000 watts is a kilowatt. A typical household microwave is rated somewhere around 1,000 watts. Now, that's only rating a power transfer. If you use that microwave for an hour straight, that is 1,000 watt hours, or 1 kilowatt hour. This is how energy generation, or the power company that charges you electricity works. They add up all the kilowatt hours to charge you. So, back to the question, what do you think the Hoover Dam's production is in kilowatt hours per year? Okay, so if you run a microwave for how long it's one kilowatt hour? One hour. Okay, so because it using the microwave for one hour produces one kilowatt hour, and I'm supposed to try to figure out how many kilowatt hours the Hoover Dam produces. I think it's three microwaves going for three hours. So nine kilowatt no, hours? No, no, three kilowatt hours. <laughs> I'm kidding. I have no clue, Michael. Four billion. That's a lot of microwaves. <laughs> Quite a few microwaves. In fact, everybody can run their microwave every day then. <laughs> How many people do you think this gives power to over the year? Oh, probably not that many, huh? Oh, uh, you'd actually be surprised. Four billion? How many <laughs> well... people are in the U.S.? <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know, maybe we sell the energy. <laughs> no, it's it's around 1.3 million people dispersed in Nevada, California, and Arizona. Well, what happens to the rest of all that? Because that's a huge no, that's, amount. I know, that's... And honestly, that doesn't even go through all the parts of California. Like, on, uh, we live in Northern California, and honestly, we probably don't get any of that power. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how the transmission lines well, work. This is, Anyways. This energy topic is making me so upset right now. <laughs> Anyways, this is a far cry from the 3.7 million that I used in the, the headline. Oh, I thought you said 3.7 million people died. Not 3.7 million kilowatts. No, no. The Hoover Dam provides power to 1.3 million people. Oh, so you're saying that at some point, 3.7 million the, people are going to get electrocuted by all their power made by Hoover Dam? The 4 billion kilowatt hours provide power to 1.3 million people. Okay, okay. Keep up. I get it. I get it. I'm just being a jerk. <laughs> so what do microwaves, the Hoover Dam, you and me have to do with 3.7 million dead mil- million dead people? Man, We're I can't work great. No, literally nothing, uh, wow. actually. I gave you this background so you could have a frame of reference for the worst disaster in the 20th century. Worst natural disaster. Okay. The Yangtze River runs through the south yes! of China. Yes, okay. You, you really, you really got me all... Continue, but I knew what this was, you jerk. You jerk. Yeah, well, if you make the headline good enough. This is literally my, my, one of my notables. <laughs> The Yangtze River provides uh, the people in southern China with the water needed for sustenance and for their large farms to feed the large population. In the spring of 1931, China had received record-breaking rainfall in the valleys and unusually high snowfall further up the hydrological food chain. That's an insane flood. The Yangtze was full as full as it had ever been. Now, residents of the Yangtze River Valley were no strangers to flooding. It occurred almost every year on some level. China's response at the time was to adapt to their infrastructure. They would build up and reform their system of dikes and levees to protect communities from floods, but the improved flood resistance would draw more agriculture and people to farm it. Then floods, then more dikes and levees to protect those people. Then more agriculture and people to farm it. This cycle began in the early 1800s. The snow began melting in spring, and coupled with the high precipitation, caused the Yangtze to start to overflow. Now, the levees and dikes constructed were able to take up the slack, but there was no more room for any more precipitation. In an average water year, that region of China would receive around two monsoons for the summer, and that'd usually be it. They received seven in July alone. These seven storms alone dropped enough water to fill the South China water table one and a half times over. Slightly a fun fact, uh, Charles and Anne Lindbergh were commissioned to fly over and map the flood zone. That was fun, by the way. The flood is categorized in three stages. The actual flood, the famine that followed, and then the disease that came after. Around 150,000 people drowned. Mm-hmm. They drowned. I know. It's insane. By August, over a half million people had been displaced from their homes. Many stayed in the hills surrounding the river. A lot of others headed towards cities in search of shelter and food. This caused a weird shift in equality. Lower supply of labor grain and animals caused a spike in the price of rice. People who could afford food and credit had to purchase them at higher costs and higher rates. They would pass these increases onto their poorer neighbors, creating another feedback loop of poverty for those who could not afford food or shelter at the new rates. Disease also caught up with residents of South China. The influx of water had created pools that were perfect for mosquito breeding grounds. 
This led to malaria outbreaks that killed over 300,000 people. Freshwater snails in the area also began thriving, causing a spike in the wetland sickness called... This is going to suck. Schistomyesis. Can I see it? Schistomyesis. Schizomyasis, yeah. That's as close as you're going to get. Disease was the real killer of this. Historians put around 80% of the total deaths at the hands of this disease. And finally, we get to the lie. So this is the lie. So you didn't get this week right. Yeah, because none of your stuff ever makes sense. (laughs) Whilst being one of the most deadly natural disasters in the 20th century, it's very doubtful that it killed 3.7 million. While it is kind of possible, more accurate estimations place the death toll around 2 to 2.5 million. Mm -hmm. So how did all of this cause the world's largest hydroelectric generator to get made? While China recognized the need for some infrastructure and real change to occur in the Yangtze River Valley, little could be done at the time due to a depleted workforce in the Civil War China was engaged in. After the Civil War, in 1951, Mao Zedong traveled to the river valley and declared that he wanted to build the Three Gorges Dam to prevent future floods. Scientists and officials who had concerns over the building of the dam were promptly killed, being labeled as riotous. The dam never moved beyond the planning stage under Mao's regime. In 1994, the dam had begun to be built. The power plant became operational in 2006, and in 2012, the dam became the largest hydroelectric power plant in terms of installed capacity. Its highest yearly output was 101.6 trillion kilowatt hours. Wait, that's a little bit more than the Hoover Dam. About 25,000 times more power than the Hoover Dam produces. Okay, okay, so like, it's like a little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more than the Hoover Dam. Okay, that that makes sense. Good for them. (laughs) That's insane. (laughs) That's a lot of power. It's a lot of power. So I'm almost positive you've read or at least saw this last one. But the mm-hmm. head, the headline. Oh, so you know what this is? Yeah. Deep. What is it? Wasn't it that? I thought it was supposed to be that. Um. What's the headline again? A coronal hole shocked telegraph operators. Yeah, wasn't there like a coronal discharge and it like affected uh like all of the the stuff and it like we had feedback. How familiar? People felt it. How familiar are you with geomagnetic storms or? Solar storms. Well, you know, I don't hang out in them or anything. I don't, like, travel the world trying to find them. Oh. Well, then some science. Geomagnetic storms are caused by a disturbance in the Earth's electromagnetic field. Sometimes accompanied by its own electromagnetic field, the storms compress the Earth's magnetosphere. This causes the magnetosphere to gain energy from the impact. They originate from the sun's corona as a release of plasma in the accompanying magnetic field. These are called coronal mass ejections. The other source is from a, is from the cooler, denser parts of the sun's corona. The corona is cooler and has less magnetism, keeping the solar winds at bay. These storms can escape from these coronal holes at a faster speed than the coronal mass ejections. It's September 1st, 1859. Astronomers Richard Carrington and Richard Hodgson independently viewed an enormous solar flare. This would begin the largest solar storm ever recorded called the Carrington Event. Mm-hmm. Normal coronal mass ejections travel in the area of 1.3 million miles an hour, or around three days to reach Earth. The ejection associated with the Carrington Event took only 17 hours from being spotted to making landfall. Quick math, how fast is that? 
17 hours listening. 17 hours. 17 hours. And then what was the other part with the math? Uh, well, uh, you need to, it's 5.5 million miles an hour. Okay, it took it 17 hours to get to Earth. From the sun. And uh, I don't what? have that number on hand. Okay, well, you ask me to do some quick math and you don't even have Yeah, but I give you the frame of reference like, that okay. <laughs> normal coronal mass ejections travel 1.3 million miles That's what I was asking for. Okay. You didn't give it to me. They take they take three, three days to reach Earth. Okay. It, less than a third of the time. That's insane. So they go, it, it's over three times as fast. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of electrical infrastructure in the 1850s, but the biggest was telegraphs. Now, a lot of telegraph operators were instructed to turn off their machines until the event passed. However, weird anomalies did occur. For starters, most telegraph systems failed. The circuitry became overloaded. Some machines threw sparks, others started fires. Some caused electrical shocks to the operators. There were operators who had disconnected their power supplies, but due to the electromagnetic storm, were still able to receive messages through their turned-off machines. In 2013, researchers at Lloyd's of London in the Atmospheric and Environmental Research Facility in the United States wanted to see what kind of devastation a Carrington event could do today. I didn't know Lloyd's of London did research. They're just insurance. <laughs> they came to the conclusion that the U.S. would see destruction on the order of 0.6 to 2.6 trillion dollars if a direct hit from a coronal mass ejection the same magnitude that hit the U.S. as the Carrington event. Okay, so they were just there to determine how much it's going to cost. Yeah, so oh, they, okay. they might still... So they really are just insurance people. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Interesting. That's all I have to say about that. And, and that's all I gotta say about that. Okay, well... I don't think I deserve to lose, um, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's stage pretty well. That's pretty cool. Okay, are you ready for mine? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Number one, Barnum and Bailey hired the sole survivor of the Mount Pele eruption of 1902 to tour with them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number two, a gate to hell opened up in Turkmenistan and no one knows why. A, I'm sorry, repeat that. A what? A gate to hell opened in up in Turkmenistan and no one knows why. Okay, well that's probably like a sinkhole or something. The deadliest blizzard in history took place in Iran. Ooh, I feel like that's true because they're just not prepared for it. Mm. Oh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I bet you it wasn't. Repeat the third one. The deadliest blizzard in history took place in Iran. Or it wasn't snow. Can can what, can other things blizzard besides snow? Can you have like a blizzard of like sand or? You can have a Dairy Queen blizzard. Gelatinous blobs. You can have a blizzard that's so thick hey, that they're not. They're not. The they're not paying us. Oh, you can have a <laughs> unspecified ice a, cream. A company. frozen treat. Frozen treat. <laughs> Why would I help you with these? Every, every week. <laughs> uh, take all I can get. What was the first one again? Barnum and Bailey hired the sole survivor of the Mount Pele eruption of 1902 to tour with them. I think that's true because uh, it's been a while since I've seen the story, but I think like he got like 
tarred or something, and he became the world's most tarred man, or something like that. He, he became one of their sideshows. Uh, second one? I'm pretty sure Barnum and Bailey is made only of sideshows. Um, which one? Uh, second one. A gate to hell opened up in Turkmenistan, and no one knows why. Mm, give me that first one. That one's true. Okay. First one, Barnum and Bailey hired the sole survivor of the Mount Pele eruption of 1902 to tour with them. All right, this is a heavy one, by the way. On May 7th of 1902, after at least a month of warning signs, Mount Pele on the French Caribbean island of Martinique erupted. The residents of the biggest city on Martinique, Saint-Pierre, known as the Paris of the Caribbean, assumed that the eruption would either be no big deal or would only cause lava flows, which they could easily escape from if need be. I didn't really want to get into it, but they also have, like, an election going on and people were really distracted at this time. Unfortunately, that night, severe tremors occurred from the volcano and it finally belched a cloud of gas with a temperature of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, or roughly... 1,649 degrees Celsius, followed by a tremendous blast sending boiling ash down on the morning of May 8th. Needless to say, the town of Saint-Pierre, along with its 30,000 citizens, had completely perished overnight. That is, except for Ludger Silbaris. What? Wasn't he, like, in a prison or something, and, like, he stuffed, like, other bodies on top of him? (laughs) <laughs> or or am, I, am I thinking of Vesuvius? Okay, you're close, but he didn't use bodies. Damn. Okay, ah, calm there, down. There, calm down. There's something about a prison. Let's yes, go. yes, there is. You have it. It's fine. Can I just tell the story? Oh, fine. <laughs> now, for the sake of truth, Luger Sabaris, known as Luis Auguste Sabaris, was not the only survivor of this catas- catastrophic event. There was at least one other survivor near the actual pyroclastic flow. And a young girl who, although was not suspected to be near the flow, had been a resident of St. Pierre, who jumped in a boat and was rescued at sea. There are even historians who argue that upwards of 64 other survivors could be counted if the term survivor expanded to those who had been burned, but had not been within the hieroclastic flow. But none of that matters here. Because in the end, the most important thing is a good story. And Ludger Silbaris had a good story. So I saw you making that face. This is not the lie. <laughs> oh, okay. No, this I is... I thought this is, technicality. As far as it goes, because it's true the way that the that it is advertised. <laughs> you see, Silbaris was known around town to be a bit of a criminal. And on the night of May 7th, Silbaris had gotten himself thrown in the local clink. For what was said to be either... A drunken brawl, a drunken cutlass fight, murder, or honestly, who knows? Uh, everyone who could have attested to his reasons for being in jail that night, well, <laughs> perished. Anyways, so Boris had been thrown into solitary confinement that night, which, yes, sounds a little harsh for just a drunken fight, but let's move past that. He was locked up in a small concrete cell that was partially built into the side of the mountain and was originally a French colonial barracks. The cell door had a small grate for ventilation facing away from the mountain and the usual small openings at the top and bottom. You know, so the door could open like a door. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) During the morning of May 8th and all of its devastation, Silbaris was, well, feeling the heat as well. Uh, When the super hot gas started coming in through the grate of Silbaris' cell, he reportedly stripped his clothes off 
and urinated on them before sticking them in the grate to keep the hot gas out. Although this helped him not breathe in the noxious superheated gas, it did not keep his cell from flash heating to about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit or about 538 degrees Celsius. When Silbaris was found four days later by rescuers, he had been horribly burned all over his body. But he had survived. In the coming months, St. Pierre would suffer more devastation. However, things looked up for Silbaris. He had been pardoned for any crimes he may have committed that earned him his life-saving sentence in that cell, and was then commissioned to come to the U.S. and tour with Barnum and Bailey as the man who survived to doomsday, and the most marvelous man in the world. His act in the tour consisted of Sobaris living in a replica version of the St. Pierre solitary confinement cell and recounting his tale to those who would come and hear it. As of today, St. Pierre has not recovered as the Caribbean gem it once was, with a current population of roughly a few thousand. The story of Ludger Silbaris remains to be one of the most miraculous in the case of such a natural disaster. So, they have the, um, this is the, and this will be in the show notes. This is his... Oh, they, they show a cell, right? Uh, they do, but this is the poster of what it looked like. Anyways, the problem that I have with the poster, <laughs> uh, the poster celebrating his uh, Barnum and Bailey tour, is that it says on there, the only living object that survived in the silent <laughs> city of death. And, you know, Sobaris, he was a Caribbean man. He's a dark-skinned Caribbean man. And the fact that they call him the only living object is just, like, a little over the top. <laughs> how, do you know how long he, he uh, toured with uh, B&B? Actually, B&B? he... Uh, it was a quite a f- not quite a few years. I'd say like less than ten, but he did it almost until his death. He didn't. He didn't. He lived only maybe a decade. Oh my after. god! How boring is the Earth where they have to <laughs> pull this guy out? Well, of... you know, back then it's not like they had the internet. They couldn't just Google this stuff happening and go, "Oh, okay." They had to pull this guy out of a volcano and just like this um, is our most interesting thing. Uh, some more notable stuff. Uh, Mount Pele had a second event during the rescue that killed thousands of people, sent help. Okay, so honestly, I would encourage, uh, there was a ton of information about this. And honestly, I didn't know about the Mount Pele eruption until now. It was a horrific thing that even people who had come, it had been a month after at least, had come to help people. After that, they even died themselves. It was really horrific. And, um... Teddy Roosevelt, our one of our presidents, he was a huge uh, sympathizer uh... sympathizer to the cause, and he tried everything he could to get Congress to send money and send help. He could not imagine like what they were going through. So honestly, like it was kind of interesting his part in it too. Uh, yeah, so I I encourage everybody to go look into that it was it was a really horrific thing and it happened in the 1900s so it's not that long ago (laughs) that's you know over 100 years now but uh okay doesn't doesn't be two two million people oh yeah so the that barnum and bailey poster i just showed you Mm -hmm. sold on ebay for guess how much is that an original poster Mm -hmm. oh that that was pretty decent quality. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say ten thousand. No, nah, I was only twelve hundred. Oh but... <laughs> well, man, you really got my hopes up. <laughs> but I mean, the, the stuff sells. <laughs> All right, are we gonna go with the gate to hell opened up in Turkmenistan and no one knows why, or the deadliest blizzard in history took place in Iran? 
Oh man, I feel like the the sinkhole one. I feel like someone knows why, and I feel like that's why it's the lie. Uh, give me, give me the blizzard. That's real. Okay. Okay, so the deadliest blizzard in history took place in Iran. Before I begin, I want to clarify that because this took place in 1972 in Iran. It would appear that much of what can be found today on the internet and in English stems from one Associated Press writer's article, which ran in multiple papers across the country and also appears to have been based off of the reports of the Iranian paper, excuse me for this, Etlilat. I'm pretty sure I listened to how it was pronounced you and I'm pretty sure the hell I butchered it again. <laughs> it's, I think it might be Etlilat. The article did not specify dates as well as they definitely could have, so if the dates are off, please don't be angry at me. <laughs> Anyways, the blizzard of 1972 started on either February 3rd or 4th and lasted a quote-unquote week long, either ending on February 9th or possibly breaking on February 9th and starting again on February 11th with no mention of when it would have ended in that case. The storm dumped 26 feet of snow across western central and southern Iran, which were places that usually experienced mild, dry winters and arid conditions. In fact, Iran had been suffering from a four-year drought when the devastating storm quickly buried entire villages and dropping the temperatures down to negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 25 degrees Celsius. Wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you there. So that was 26 feet in a week? Mm-hmm. Yes. It was... It would have been devastating for many places, not even just because yeah. Iran is arid. That's like three feet a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why it's bad. <laughs> That's why it's a disaster. That's over an inch an hour. So we're we're pretty familiar with, with Lake Tahoe. And like if, if they get more than like an inch an hour for like, let's say three hours, like that's a bad storm. <laughs> like, no, you're, you're holed up in your house. Yeah. Or, I guess well, it's a cabin. These people were definitely held up in their house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so due to these temperatures, this caused pipes to burst, only adding to the water shortage. But there's 26 feet of water around them. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. Yeah, sometimes. When the storm seemed to have stopped on February 9th, rescuers were sent in via helicopter to try and dig survivors out. In the village of Sheklab, near the Turkish border, rescuers dug for two days, attempting to find any of the hundred people who resided there, only finding 18 bodies before the storm forced them to leave again. The villages of Kakan and Kumar were also completely wiped out. Some claim up to 200 villages had been wiped out by the storm. However, I was unable to confirm that number. Beyond the freezing conditions and the crushing snow blanket, there are other deadly factors at play. According to the AP article, a deadly flu was spreading in Iran at the time. And when the blizzard hit, there were villages such as Primelo, which reported all inhabitants as being infected. Overall, at least 4,000 Iranians perished in the disaster. And the lasting devastation of the blizzard aftermath is unknown. So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of follow-up either, at least in English-speaking stuff. <laughs> so we don't even know if it's the most deadliest no, it blizzard is, ever? No, it's technically considered the most deadliest Aha, I blizzard. Win. Well, yeah, no, no, this was a truth too. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, you probably win this week, you jerk. <laughs> That's all you care about. But here, let me show you a picture. Also, once again, this is going to be in the notes. God, 26 feet, so that's... 
So they have these... This was at the beginning. These are people still being able to walk out in the street, and this is somebody trying to drive through it. Jesus. That's over 300 inches in a week. Yeah. That's like average snowfall in the Sierra Nevadas. Yeah, there was even... um, For the season. There was even reports that uh, the military was coming in, and because they couldn't do anything, because of the, the storms, they couldn't do anything to help the people out, and they knew that supposedly this would be the case of if another storm had started up, they knew this another storm was coming. They had literally just put the food on top of the mounds of ice and just hoped that if somebody dug themselves out, they'd be able to get to some food. Wow. Yeah, it was. they were completely not ready for it. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> and I'm kind of, it's disappointing to know that we don't have more on it here in the, the English-speaking um, world. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nuts. Like, every couple of years, you'll see, like, oh, look look at this uh, snowfall that happened in the Middle East. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's kind of cool, but does it really do that there? But, oh, my God, that those pictures well, are nuts. The second worst blizzard, I believe it said, was, was also Afghanistan in 2008. So, uh, I believe that's what it was. Please don't, please don't jump on me for that. I'm just trying to remember what I read. I didn't write it down. (laughs) But yeah, like blizzards in the Middle East, it's one, they're incredibly unprepared and two, they are insane. (laughs) Uh, okay. Yeah. Give me a third one. Give me the lie. And you, you got it. (laughs) We have three this week. All right. A gate to hell opened up in Turkmenistan and no one knows why. In 1971, a large burning hole opened up in the Karakom Desert of Turkmenistan, which has been labeled the Gates of Hell. However, the bright blazing chasm, which has even been known to attract thousands of spiders to their death at times, is not a natural disaster, and we completely know why it happened. Because we caused it. (laughs) The hole is known as the Darvaza Gas Crater, which was born when Soviet scientists had begun drilling, Believing they had found oil, but instead finding a natural gas pocket, the pocket opened up, releasing the natural gas and swallowing all of their drilling equipment. Fortunately, no one was hurt in the event, but wildlife had begun to die in the area as the poisonous gases seeped out. For this reason, geologists suggested setting the pit on fire to burn it off. <laughs> this is a common practice in natural gas, so don't laugh at it. No, I know. That's a, that's a normal thing. That's just it's so funny to me. <laughs> This is a common practice in natural gas drilling called flaring, as any uncaptured natural gas can displace oxygen, which may cause explosions or possibly suffocate people and wildlife in the area. Uh, apparently, in our... Is it North Dakota? It's, I think it's North Dakota is one of our biggest natural gas drilling spots. And flaring, which they have to do all of the time, mm-hmm. costs about $2 million worth of natural gas every day or something like that. It's the, it was some some crazy number like that. Well, yeah, you're not going to take, like, trash bags and, like, try to go catch Well, yeah, them. no, you can't go do that. Michael, it's dangerous. Don't touch <laughs> it with your trash bag. <laughs> it's right through trash bags. <laughs> In the case of the Darvaza gas crater, the geologists suspected it would burn off and the fire would go out in just a few weeks. However, to the dismay of the Turkmenistan government, who views the crater as a possible danger to the nearby oil fields, the crater continues to burn to this day, and can even be seen from the International Space Station. <laughs> and this is what it looks like. Yeah, I think I've, I think I've yeah, seen Yeah, it this. looks like yeah. a pit to hell. <laughs> but they're just like, oh, it's okay, it's gonna burn off in a couple weeks, she'll be fine. 
34, almost 40 years later. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of crazy how this stuff is. Nope. <laughs> it's crazy. People, um, I couldn't find anything, but uh, I couldn't find like pictures or anything. But apparently just like because of the bright glowiness and the fact that it's in the middle of not, like, you know, it's mostly dark and there's no light or anything at night. Mm -hmm. Just thousands of spiders will just start running towards it because they're like, oh, they like to go see the light and they just burn to their death. Like, it's, that's so scary. It almost is like, it might be a bit <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, did you have any notable Yeah, actually. Topics? So, I have my uh, favorite scientist ever, Charles Hatfield. So you know this one, because I've, I've told you this story. I don't know, a while ago. Wow. Uh, scientist in the early 1900s. Uh, he was one of the first to develop a way to rain seed, which is to create rain from basically nothing. Uh, he had a couple successful runs. Uh, one ended up bringing the L.A. area 18 inches of rain in one rain event. Uh, and that was in 1910. Excuse me, no, he was a big deal by 1910. I, I, I couldn't actually find the date on that. Anyways, in 1914... Uh, San Diego had been going through a drought, and one of one of the city officials had hired him to uh, give the, I believe it was the Ote Lakes, three inches of water, it was 13 inches of water, and, uh, some some amount of water, uh, and he rain-seeded day after day after day, and it ended up being the worst flood that San Diego had ever seen. Uh, he wasn't paid for the job, even though he kind of did it, but he also... <laughs> caused like, like a few hundred deaths i've never heard this story that's, i'm just kidding that's <laughs> yes i you did tell me about this one <laughs> i got one more but do you have anything yeah no no you go oh okay i got um one, whatever i really want to make a full story out of this one but it was just too short there has only been one hurricane to ever hit california so in uh recorded history there have been only seven tropical cyclones that have had an impact on california but one may have actually made landfall as a hurricane. Uh, so this one was tough, and the reason I didn't make it a story was because a lot of the sources were saying it actually never made landfall. And I believe in order for a, a hurricane to say that it made landfall, the eye of the storm needs to be over. And a lot of the sources were saying that it was only the outside clouds that... It only winked at us. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um uh, anyways, the hurricane was a Category 1 when it brushed by, which is the, the lowest that's not a tropical storm. I believe that wind speeds up to, like, 60 miles an hour. We oh, might, boo. We might cut that because I'm pretty sure that's wrong. We will not cut that even if it's wrong. So the NOAA uh, did a, some research in 2004 to see what uh, the estimated destruction would be in 2004 dollars. And... They declared that if a Category 1 hurricane had done the same path uh, through California nowadays, it would have caused at least $500 million of damage. How many dead people? Though? They didn't do that. Do you, wait, do, you, oh, do they no, calculate I, the dead people in dollars? Uh, there is a dollar amount for every dead life, but I don't that think... That is true. Uh, that's yeah, a, that's an that's entirely completed. different story. <laughs> uh, um, what'd you, what, what interesting ones did you have? Well, aside from the fact that we're currently experiencing uh, incredible locust issues right now, 
across all of Africa and, and other parts this 2020. I did have the Yellow River Flood of 1887, which killed, had a, the highest estimated death toll of 2 million, but at least 900,000 had died. And that was the, another horrific flood in China. Yep. Um, and, you know, everybody would probably get upset at us if we didn't mention the Tunguska event of 1908 with the uh, explosion in the Tunguska forest that it was believed to be a meteorite. However, only possible meteorite fragments were ever found around. For being such a huge explosion, there wasn't a lot to suggest it was a meteorite, but that is the running theory right now. The other theory is aliens. But, you know, nobody wants to go there. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. That's, um... That's our, at least our first one on natural disasters. Yeah, so my uh, Yangtze River one, mm -hmm. uh, it really makes me want to do one on dictators. So that's getting added to Oh, the well, list. we have to do one on dictators. Don't uh, worry about man, that. Man, Mao Zedong had quite the political career. I would assume so. Be on the lookout for that, I guess. Yep. Boom. Are we there yet? Oh, you want us to end the show. Did okay, you... well, I suppose we could do that. I, I think we do. Uh, th th thank you for thank you for listening. Do we? Oh, yeah, I guess we should. Thank you for listening. Have a good one. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void, found on the Free Music Archive, CCBY License. Thank you for listening.